Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully and I am really thrilled to be able to introduce the author in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode because her writing takes us somewhere a little bit different from where we might normally go with a traditional book. She writes stories that unfold on screens as well as on pages and narratives where choices can be made by the reader that directly affect what happens next. She's a tremendously successful video game writer. She's also written comics and scripts for TV and film and non-fiction books about aspects of the game writing art and most recently the book we're going to talk about a little later today. She is Rihanna Pratchett. Welcome to the podcast Rihanna. Hello. Hello. I'm very very happy to be in your virtual classroom. Okay so I'm just going to go straight in with this because I know all our listeners will want to know this. Video game writer, how do you end up with that job? By accident, really. I never set out to be a video game writer because I didn't really know that they existed. And right. they didn't really exist in, in the way that I became a, a video game writer. So I originally started out as a gamer myself. I've played games since I was six. Um, I studied journalism at university. I really wanted to get into film journalism, but I couldn't find a, a way to, to crack through that. And so I decided to... to um, try and get some work in games. And I got some freelance work, working for a few publications. And then I got a full-time job working on PC Zone magazine, which was um, a PC games magazine. And I spent two years full-time there, going all around the world, meeting developers, seeing how games were, were built and by each individual department and you know, really getting to know how the industry worked. And I spent a, a few years there and I went freelance again because I think I really wanted a job where I could be in my pajamas most of the time, uh, which isn't uh, so appreciated at an office. And I, I started doing more games reviews for different publications and newspapers and websites and all that kind of thing. And um, I was asked to be a script editor for a game called Beyond Divinity, which was an RPG game, a role-playing game um, by Larian Studios, who are still going very strong with the Divinity Original Sin games at the moment. And it just built from there, really. I I thought it was a more interesting way of paying the bills than continually pitching games reviews or, or trying to get freelance work. And so after that, I used the contacts that I'd made in the games industry. And I, I went to them and said, hey, I'm, I'm doing game script writing and narrative now. Do you have any work for me? And that's how I sort of started getting little bits of and pieces of work on games it, it was it, you know from from editorial work on beyond divinity i did um, mission dialogue i did uh, level dialogue for things like a pac-man game and a spongebob game and just getting little bits of experience and credits wherever i could and writing for a, a video game how is it different do you think from from other sorts of writing or, or is it different from other sorts of writing i mean ultimately you're telling a story right yeah, absolutely. And there, there's certainly uh, commonalities in all storytelling, but what makes 
video games so special is is the role of the player, the, the audience, and, and how you have to factor them in when you're telling the story. So when you're watching TV or a movie, um, you're pretty much passively absorbing the story. The story, you're sitting there, the story is being told to you. Don't take an active part in that story. But when you're playing games, you know, you are the story. The story is, is happening around you. It's happening because of you. Your actions and your choices in the story can change the story and even the world around you. And that, that's a very powerful experience. So when you're, you're writing and creating games, you have to think about the, the journey that the player is going on. Right. That's something that, as you say, is, is not easy to do if you're, you know, if you're sitting in the classroom and you've been told you have to write a, a story about a certain subject. It's just you and that, and that piece of paper and you, it's not going to get shown to the audience until it's finished. I wonder if there's a particular value in the kind of writing that makes you think so carefully about the, the reader's input as you write it. Absolutely, because you're working in teams as well. So you might be working with other writers, but you'll also be working with designers as well. So you'll be having to think about the gameplay of the games and, and maybe what that says about the characters. In writing, we say action equals character, meaning what a what a, a character does, that's what really shows you who they are inside. That, sorry to interrupt you, Rihanna, but that is exactly what the teachers mean when they say to the pupils show not tell yeah and, and all the pupils listening will be familiar with that that's exactly the same the same idea yeah it's really important I I, I just wonder if you know on the on the curriculum in, in classrooms there are all these different types of writing that that children learn about you know narrative and reports and recounts and persuasive writing I just wonder if there's a, a little gap there and I wonder if action writing or, or games writing should maybe be slipped into the curriculum there what do you think I think it's it's uh, very interesting to kind of think about the actions that your your characters are doing and and also things like environmental storytelling are huge in games like every uh, entertainment medium every every kind of story uses the environment to help tell the story to to show you a bit more about the characters in the world um, it might be like someone's messy bedroom or it might be what a planet looks like. Mm -hmm. But in games and, and you know, you, you'll see on, say, plays or a TV, you'll see scenes um, that, may, that have environmental storytelling as part of it. But in games, you've got you can poke around in every single corner. You can um, the real estate for, for environmental storytelling in games is, is so huge because, you know, your players can can look at every thing for as long as they want so you can you can really use it to your advantage it sounds so exciting and so empowering as a as a as a way of writing i mean you really are creating worlds aren't you and then and then watching to see what happens in them almost absolutely a lot of what you do is is world building and often when you're when you start off working on a game you're doing a lot of heavy thinking about the world and the characters and it's what i call building the body of the iceberg so you know, with icebergs, most of the iceberg is under the water and there's just the tip that is is what we can see. So I, I think stories are a little bit like that too. So the tip is is what you see and experience in the story and, and the body of the iceberg is everything else that 
got you hmm. to to that moment. So all, all the hard thinking that you've done about the characters and the world and how everything is put together. It could be that, you know, you know about the characters' pet peeves or their favourite biscuit or what pets they have. And <laughs> it might not actually come out in what you're writing, but it makes the characters feel more real and it sort of helps your writing in quite an invisible way. That makes a lot of sense. And as well as the video games writing, one of the the many other ways of writing that you've experienced is writing comic books. And again, I think that's something that a lot of our listeners will be interested in. A lot of our listeners will enjoy comic books and they might have it in their head that comic books like video games are sort of in a, in a very different category from proper books from <laughs> from actual you know real reading books that that these are different kinds of stories and and almost maybe not as valuable as stories is that something that you can understand? Is is that something that you would argue? I think it's a little bit snobbish, really. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't like saying that any story has has more more value than another story. I mean, what you enjoy and engages you, that has value to to you. It might be that you know something else engages another person and that has value to them. But you know, I was I grew up with comics as well as I, I grew up with games, so I was very delighted to to be able to get to write for them, and, and I got to write for them as part of the video game so that the first comics I did were for a game called Mirror's Edge that that I had written and Mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to work for DC and do a mini series of Mirror's Edge comics so it's just six issues and I think I wrote a little like a teaser eight page issue to to go out at at Comic-Con I think and that was really good fun because I could fit everything that I couldn't get into the game into the comics so I could (laughs) you often find yourself as a writer in games in a situation where you know you're you're not in control of everything you're you're part of a team and there there are going to be other people who have their views on on the level design on the gameplay and so everyone is sort of competing for for what is best for their particular discipline and and writing is part of that but you're going to have a, a lot of battles because the needs of gameplay don't always align with the needs of narrative right and so with mirror's edge a lot of the game had been designed when i when i came on board so i had to write and and wrap a story around what was there so it's a bit like working backwards yeah so the the sort of I knew where the character had to to go I just had to sort of get them there kind of physically and and kind of emotionally as well and you know, take the levels that were there and wind a story around them, which is the complete opposite way to how you would work in other mediums. And so that meant a lot of what I would have liked to have done if I'd maybe been there at the start of the project when it was starting up. I, you know, I had lots of ideas for that and that meant I could kind of fold fold it into to the comics that I was writing. And sure. that that helped a lot kind of you know it was very cathartic actually being able to do that and it was the same <laughs> same experience with the Tomb Raider comics that I did with Dark Horse and I could have a lot more fun in the comics because I was more more in charge of things I wasn't uh, you know, the team was a lot smaller when you're working on a, a, a game like Tomb Raider you're you have hundreds, hundreds of people all around the world working on it. With comics, it's, it's a much smaller team. It's sort of you and the artist and, and the editors, the letterers, the colorists, and a, a kind of a much smaller team. And I think I had a couple of people telling me 
um, and, and you know what, what I, I could and couldn't do but I didn't have lots and lots of people giving feedback I had a little bit more freedom to do what I wanted with the characters and I had like Lara Croft dressed as one of the Bennett sisters from Pride and Prejudice fighting bad guys on the London Underground <laughs> uh, and I had one of the characters fending someone off with a cupcake and <laughs> like lots of fun fun things like that so I had one of the characters in the games you, you meet his cats and, and things like that <laughs> It can be really fun for expanding the world out. And in the, in the case of the, the Tomb Raider comics, they actually sort of bridge the gap for players in between the first and the second game so that the kind of the comic series came whilst we were sort of developing the second game. And then the, the last series of, of comics, the last arc of comics, they actually directly folded into the second game, which was called Rise of the Tomb Raider. Um, and so it gives kind of your, your players something to sort of keep them going whilst you're working on the games. Absolutely. And it moves them between mediums as well, which is which is really good, I think. And now there's this fighting fantasy book called Crystal of Storms, which is kind of, I suppose, it, it falls somewhere in between the the video game and and the comic. In in that you have that control as the writer, but then of course because it is an interactive book the the reader has some kind of input as well tell me a little bit about the skills that it took to put that kind of a book together it really drew upon my narrative design skills as well as my writing skills. So I started out as a writer, but I, I became a narrative designer as part of the job. And narrative design in, in video games, um, how best to define that? Well, writing is probably what we, we kind of most traditionally understand. And it's the, the, word, the, the word bits. Um, <laughs> the word bits, I like that. And so it's a sort of traditional writerly things. Yeah. Narrative design is the ways in which that story gets to the player. So it's a, it's about combining narrative with mechanics. And narrative designers have one foot in the camp of narrative and one foot in the camp of design, as, as the uh, the title suggests. And so it's it's not just the story you tell in games, it's how you tell it. Right. And with narrative design, you could be telling a story through you know, very movie-like cinematics, like something like to Tomb Raider or Heavenly Sword has very cinematic scenes. And, and with Heavenly Saw, we actually had Andy Serkis, who played Gollum in Lord of the Rings, as our, our antagonist, um, King Bohan, and also as, as our dramatic director. So he took all our actors down to Wessa, where they did all the, the mo-capture for Lord of the Rings, and, and they captured face and body mo-capture for, for the first time in one place. So I think normally facial and body mo-cap is captured separately, but we, we captured it all together, and it was the first time that that had been done before, and that was back in sort of 2006, I think. <laughs> you can look at games like Limbo or Inside and they don't have traditional text or you know, voice act in the game. That The story is told through the visuals, it's told through the level design, it's told through the mechanics or something like Virginia, which just where the characters just use gestures to kind of communicate themselves um, right. and they don't ever talk to you. There's so many different ways of communicating the story to the player, and that's really what kind of narrative design is. I sort of picked that up whilst I, I was working on on the writing side of things, and I think that became very handy because I had to narratively design the world to start with. I had to have a, a framework for how I was kind of going to spin the story. So I had the idea of this archipelago of islands in the sky, these, these five islands with a sixth island in the, in the centre, and each island 
well, they were a little bit like a, a level in in a, a video game, I think. Yeah. And, and so each had its own kind of role in the economy of the uh, Pangaria, which is the, the um, archipelago. And so one is, is just kind of devoted to to farming and agriculture. One is about kind of water production. Uh, one is about sort of trade. One is about technomancy, which is the sort of half magic, half technology that underpins the world. And so I thought a lot about that first, that framework of where I was going to take the reader. And once I had that... I could kind of like dive in and start creating on the fly. So it was, it was important in kind of getting that overall structure down. And I knew I wanted to do floating islands and I knew I wanted to do some underwater stuff because I, I'm quite obsessed with underwater things. I'm a, <laughs> a qualified advanced open water diver. I love underwater world and underwater creatures. Just being near water, I find comforting and exciting. And so I knew I wanted to do some of that as well. So I sort of did the, the construction of, of the world. Uh, a little bit to start with, just enough to kind of give me an idea of where I was, go- where I was going uh, with with the kind of writing part, which I, I sort of, I was very helped by uh, John Green, who who um, was my kind of fighting fantasy editor. So he would advise me about how to structure fights and things like that, because in a book, a book can't remember where you've been and who you've talked to <laughs> in the way that a video game can. So yes. you're sort of limited in, in in that kind of way. So you sort of have to find ways around that. And you can do some kind of fun stuff like, you know, having different stages in boss fights where something something unexpected happens in the fight and you have to do an extra dice roll and then um, maybe another monster turns up and just kind of he, he helped me with the kind of nitty gritty of, of fighting fantasy stuff and also the language and which words were uppercased and which words were maybe a little bit too modern for for the, the world. So I wasn't allowed to use the word sandwich. <laughs> no sandwiches. But if it's a world without sandwiches, I'm not going. Who wants to live in that kind of world? But I did get pie. I did get pie in there, and pie is pretty good. So I. I oh, okay. Well, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll probably accept that. I mean, it sounds great fun to write. You're really allowing your your imagination to to fly, but it's also so massively controlled, isn't it? You you really do have to know where everything is and where you're going and what all the pathways are. I remember when I was I must have been in year seven we were challenged to write this kind of adventure story. And and I believe my team and I came up with a story called Murder on the Balcony, which was <laughs> set in our school with very thinly disguised teachers <laughs> as characters and, a, and an awful lot of blood and, and gore. And it, it was fun, but it was really difficult. And it taught us a lot about plot and structure yeah. and organisation. I think it was it was really valuable in that way. I did a similar thing. I think I did a Lord of the Flies story with all my classmates. In. <laughs> Rihanna, we always ask our guests to read a little from one of their books as part of the podcast. So I thought what we might do here as your book is a little bit different from those that we often hear from is that if you start reading and then maybe I could make the choices when they come up and we could see where we go. What, what do you think? Is that all right? Okay, yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, I'll just pause the recording for a moment then while we both get ready and then we'll come back for some adventure. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with this episode's guest, Rihanna Pratchett. 
So, Rihanna, you are now going to read, with my invaluable help, I might add, a little from Crystal of Storms, your fighting fantasy book. Let's go. Okay, here we go, here we go. The shadow unfolds a pair of wings. As it draws closer, you can see it's a canidor, or at least it was once. Now it's fighting the effects of the surge of elemental energy from the explosion. Its eyes glow with flashes of lightning while sparks crackle off its fur. You can see a collar around its neck. The name tag reads, Flaps. Flaps and snarls, revealing wickedly sharp teeth. Then he whimpers a little. The elemental energy hasn't completely corrupted him, but it can't be long before it does. If you want to use a calming potion on Flaps, turn to 285. If you have uh, Methedus's shard and want to use it on Flaps, turn to 265. If you want to fight Flaps, turn to 147. If you want to flee, hoping the Canador doesn't pursue you and head for the Goblin Flyer instead, turn to 361. Okay, I don't have the shard. I'm, I'm not feeling like a fight at the moment and I don't want to run away. So I am going to use the calming potion, please. Good choice. Good choice. You hurl the calming potion towards Flaps, who grabs it in his teeth. The bottle breaks and the liquid pours into its mouth. It works quickly and Flaps starts to shrink in size. The glow leaves his eyes and his fur stops sparking. Flaps licks your face before bounding out the cave and taking off, heading in the direction of the Cloudkin farm. Add one point to your luck score. Yes. You find a longsword lying amongst the rocks and dirt at the back of the cave. Record the longsword in the weapons box on your adventure sheet. If you use the longsword in battle, you may increase your attack strength by one point. Leaving the cave, if you want to investigate the Goblin Flyer, turn to 361. If you haven't been to the Watch House and want to go there now, turn to 40. Oh, I think I need to investigate the Goblin Flyer. Okay. The Goblin Flyer bobs up and down the breeze as you approach. However, its pilot sits nearby, holding his head in his hands and moaning gently. You recognise the pilot as a goblin named Critch and ask him what's the matter. Bit of rubble hit me upside the head, says Critch. I ain't fly nowhere until I get a bit of healing, but if you're looking to charge your hovers, then the machine is over there. If you want to give him a cabbage leaf or some healing honey, if you have either, turn to 20. If you want to charge your hovers for one gold piece, turn to 96. If you do not have any gold pieces, you can continue no further and your adventure is over. I have a gold piece and it is very important to keep your hovers charged. So I am going to take this opportunity while it's there to charge my hovers. Okay, you put one gold piece in the slot of the little machine and place your hovers storm crystal inside the charging chamber. There's a loud whirring noise and the little storm crystal begins to glow brightly. The tiny tempest inside starts to whirl again. You're now ready to take off and visit Cirrus or Cumulus. If you want to fly to Cirrus, the farming island, turn to 220. If you want to fly to Cumulus, the island of trade, turn to 140. Oh, they both sound interesting. Farming, trade, farming, trade, farming, trade. I'm going to go for Cumulus, please, the island of trade. Okay, you decide to visit Cumulus, the island of trade. You check the hovers, make a running jump and take off the waters of Altus sparkling below you. You don't see cumulus at first. You smell it. The scents drift up to you from the numerous stalls and vendors who trade their wares in the large markets that dominate the island. 
the soft, spicy smell of gingerbread biscuits and cinnamon milk puddings mingle with the pungent aromas of stink fruit and sizzling fish steaks. A humming jolts you from your musings and the wings begin to shudder. You tense your shoulders and move your upper body as you try to glide yourself down towards a safe and soft landing before the hover's storm crystal runs out of energy. Test your skill. If you're successful, turn to 12. If you are unsuccessful, turn to 138. You see, this is the point at which I would have to roll a die and I don't have a die. So I think <laughs> this well, is your adventure is over. My adventure is over. Oh no, I really enjoyed that. What I love about this this kind of book that what happens can depend so much on what kind of a reader and even what kind of a person you are. So you know, you can make your reckless way through the, the the book, making all the reckless choices, or you can be super cautious, or you know, perhaps, and I'm not mentioning any names. You could be a bit of a player. You could be trying trying to second guess <laughs> what the narrator is is making you do. Do you have to keep all of those readers in mind when you're writing, or, or does it just sort of magically happen? It's a little bit of both, I think. You know, certainly being a, a, a game player myself has helped a lot. So I kind of have an understanding of maybe what I would like and, and kind of what other uh, other gaming friends would like, kind of situations to put the, the players in. I, I decided that I wanted part of the book to have a, an underwater area to it because I love doing underwater stuff. Mm-hmm. The last sort of, the third act of, of the story takes place underwater and you have a little bathysphere, which is a little, kind of round submarine that you kind of go bobbing around in the deeps trying to find the lost island and so that was kind of very fun to do and that was sort of me like directly going I I want to do this because I like it and why not (laughs) yeah absolutely and and that kind of definitely helped but I think I've developed a kind of particular sense of how to structure to gameplay and, and level design and even though that wasn't what I started out doing I kind of learned it as I went along because I had to learn about you know, what the the game design department wanted, what the the level design department wanted, what the the mechanics were doing. I had to factor that into the story that was being told and how it was being told. I, I learned about it, and that was almost quite subtly as as a sort of secondary thing, and that's helped a lot. And I'm I'm kind of working on a on a, a board game now called Bard Song with with Steamforge Games, and that directly you know draws upon what I did in the Fighting Fantasy book, except I'm taking that experience to a to a board game to a D&D style board game and creating a world for, for players that way there are a lot of kind of avenues to for, for these kind of skills I think yeah and I think one thing that strikes me about the way the book is is written as well which, which I guess applies to to other mediums too is that you, you have to fit a lot of quite vivid detail into a very small piece of writing so each of those sections that we hopped between had to be quite complete in itself so you had I, I love the the initial description of the um the trading island that that we landed hmm. on and you did it all through the sense of, of smell pretty much but it was so vivid that suddenly I was there and I, I think that's that's quite a skill to put someone so completely in the picture in a single paragraph yeah I think it, it really helps if, if you can can do that especially with as you say a fighting fantasy books which, which is written in sections so you have about 400 sections that you have to write and so you know mm-hmm. that you've got to do 400 of these chunks uh, when you start off and 
sort of managing all those chunks is one of the big, less exciting parts of, of writing a fighting <laughs> fantasy book. It's actually just keeping hold of all the different sections and making sure like you're not turning, going from one page and just turning the page over to the next section. So you've got to make sure where you turn to is, you know, as far away as you can from where you started. So you're getting, <laughs> you're getting readers to go back and forth. It, it certainly works. I, I spent a very happy time with this book, wandering around all, all the islands, and it was it was hugely enjoyable. There's something a little bit thorny I'd like to raise with you. The Fighting Fantasy series was launched in 1982, and for all our listeners, that was a long time ago. You are the first ever female guest author of the series. Now, is there just something about the games industry and the work associated with that that makes it, I don't know, harder for females, less suitable for females? What is going on? I don't know. And I don't think I ever really asked Ian and Steve when, when I was first, um, uh, you know, they, they first invited me to, to come aboard and, and write a fighting fantasy book. You know, I grew up as an only child. I never had any brothers or sisters telling me, you know, when you're what a girl should like doing. And so I just <laughs> went with what seemed interesting and, and often what my dad was doing. And he was very into electronics and computers and things like that. So I kind of just went along with what... I found interesting and and more often than not that would kind of end up with me being the only girl in the room doing something like karate or judo it isn't as <laughs> isn't so common to be the only girl these days but it was was back then and in the games industry I was the only um, female writer on PC Zone you know a, a small handful of women working as journalists in the games industry so I've often occupied that space of, of being sort of one of, of the first women to do something and that can be kind of it can be very fun, but it can also be a, a little bit daunting as well. Um, I don't think there's there's absolutely nothing that, that would that hold a woman back from from writing a fighting fantasy book. Um, it certainly helped for me that I, I had done a, a lot of work in games, and so I had a, a real sense of of design and flow and and creating an experience for the player. I think was very useful. So I think the fact that I come from the the games world and I had that background was was very very useful. I think it was easier for me coming from a, a, a game design background than maybe it would if I'd, I'd come as a already as a novel author. Sure but just to clarify that games design background there's, there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be as open to, to girls as it is to boys. Yes, it's it's absolutely as open to, to girls as, as boys, and and in fact we we would like to get as many girls as possible, but there, because there's there's not as many um, uh, girls and young women working in games, um, and yeah, we would we you know I want to encourage them in. Brilliant. Well, then maybe there are some girls listening to this podcast now who who might be sparked by this to go off and explore and see a little bit more about what that is about. We're starting to run out of time. I just wanted to take a moment to remind the grown-ups listening about the special free resources pack that we produce to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom. And the idea is that children can take what they've heard and they can use it to influence their own writing. The packs are available from plazoom.com and details, as always, are in the episode notes. I'm just going to pause the recording again so everyone can make a note of that. And then we'll be back, Rihanna, if that's OK for a few last words.
Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with our very special guest for this episode, Rihanna Pratchett. Now, Rihanna, there's a little bit of an elephant in the room here, and I'm just going to lead it out into the spotlight for a moment, if that's okay. Now, I am always reluctant to define people by whom they're related to or partnered with or a parent of or friends with. But there are some surnames that simply cannot pass without comment. And I'm afraid Pratchett is one of them. Your dad, Terry Pratchett, was one of the best loved authors of his or frankly any generation. And I know that many, many of our listeners, along with me, will already be fans of his books. What I'm interested in knowing is, for you growing up, you know, he, he was just dad, right? Did you did you realize what he did for a living and, and how important that was for so many people? Um, not for a while, because as you say, he's he's dad and, and when you're young, you don't pay that much attention to what your your parents are doing. <laughs> Tell me about it. And I like I remember like finding your know, picture and, and kind of English writing books from when I was a kid where I was talking about my parents and largely when I talk about my dad it would revolve around the hat he wore rather than <laughs> like, I don't I don't think I wrote anything about how he was a writer I think it was it was all about the hat and and how we would go for walks together and things like that but I, I think I only became aware when I was about eight or nine years old and uh, Equal Rights one of my father's books was serialized on Women's Hour on Radio 4 and Woman's Hour was sort of sacred in in my household because my mum would always listen to it and it felt like a like an important grown up thing. So my dad must be really important and grown up if he's on Woman's Hour. That's brilliant. Um, and and so like I diligently tape recorded the program uh, and all the all the kind of different episodes of, of Equal Rights. And I think it was only maybe like a four parter, and and I listened to it over and over again. And that's where where it sort of first captivated me and it was also the one where my dad was quite open about one of the characters being based on me when I was when I was about eight years old the central character who's who's uh, Escarina Uh, I think that sort of drew me in as well so it was only around that time I started to realize what my father was doing and and I actually started to to read (laughs) his books uh, myself I think that some of our listeners might still think there's a, a really clear divide between the world of video games, which is is, is your world, I guess, and, and the world of books, which is perhaps how they might think of, of your father's world. But actually, there's there's a huge crossover, isn't there? So, sort of. I mean, as I was saying before, the, the, there are commonalities between all, all storytelling media. Um, the difference between novels and games is that when you're a novelist, you are in charge of your world. So you're in charge of everything. You might have an editor or two to work with. Maybe your agent will give feedback, but it's basically you and the blank page and, and what you create. And with games, you are you are working as part of a team. You, you are having to factor in what level design is doing what you know the the mechanics are doing what everything else is doing and you're you're constantly having to adapt your script depending on what is happening on with with level design and and, and uh, mechanics and that can sort of change as you go through the development process and it's a bit like writing a movie whilst the movie is being shot at the same time because everyone <laughs> is working on everything at the same time whereas in film and tv you'll write the script first 
uh, and that will get you know developed until it's a good standard. But with games, you're writing everything whilst everything is being built at the same time. Yeah, and it sounds like such an exciting process. And I, I really do hope that our listeners go off and just explore and find out a little bit more about what's involved. If any of them do that and, and they really end up feeling that, that writing for video games is something that they would like to do when they're a bit older, do you have just one key piece of advice? that you could give them that might be useful to them now? Oh, I, I normally give three. <laughs> oh, go on. All right, I'll let you have three. I'll let you have three. Okay, so it, it's it's play lots of games, uh, which is the like the best one. <laughs> <laughs> this is advice they will take on board very happily. Play lots of games. Play lots of different kinds of games, different genres of games, like, you know, from, from little indie games up to big AAA games. Look at the, the different way that narrative is used in those games. You know, it can be through cinematics, it could be through just the level design itself or the mechanics itself and particularly look at the areas that are unique to games, that, that the, the ways in which games can communicate story that are unique to games, you know, through the mechanics, through the level design, that kind yeah. Practice your writing. You know, a, a writer writes. So to keep on honing your skills, every writer should constantly be learning, constantly be improving themselves. And that goes for, for writers that are just starting out to, to writers who have been doing it for, for 20 or 30 years. You're always learning. And and also read as well. Read around, uh, you know, subjects, um, read history, read uh, philosophy, um, you know, read, read the newspaper, be a sponge for stories be um, a sponge for for people's experiences um, a writer has to have that the you know an open mind and then you know la- later on um, network go to go to conferences and festivals um, that are about games and game design because you'll often find when it comes to narrative there are talks there about narrative sometimes the the whole day is devoted to kind of narrative and and find events that have show floors where developers will be showing off the games that they are they're working on and they'll often be in early stages and you can um you know you, you can you know make friends you can make contacts and, and sometimes that that can help turn into work later on i think that is advice that the young listeners and the grown-up listeners will be very very happy with rihanna thank you so much and and thank you for having me oh it's been great having you um thanks for being our guest for this episode it's been absolutely fascinating and to all our listeners thank you as always for being here we'll be back soon with another author in your classroom see you then bye-bye author in your classroom is brought to you by plazoom where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. 
We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with author in your classroom and Plazoom.